Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Launched into the world in 1941, Wonder Woman was immediately an icon for feminism and a figure of controversy for misogynists everywhere. Created by psychologist William Moulton Marsden and originally drawn by H.G. Peter, a 61-year-old suffragette cartoonist, her mission was clear to establish equality and beat up the bad guys. Sadly, though, her story hasn't always been well told. My guest today has helped redefine her place in super society. Nicola Scott is one of Australia's most successful comic book artists, in conversation, we look at just how this amazing Amazon has influenced every element of Nicola's life and career. Hello, Nicola. Thank you for joining me. Hi. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Your first contact with Wonder Woman seems to be when you're about four years old, sitting on the couch with your sisters. You, you grew up in a house of strong, bold, creative women. Yeah. Was it love at first sight for you? It was 100% love at first sight. I can, I remember, I have that memory. It's so strong. It's, I, I um, it, the impact of it, because the, the, the specific memory that I have was Wonder Woman running down the street and jumping over a car and throwing some bad guys around. I now know that it was the pilot episode because I know the scene. I've, I'm now super familiar with the scene. This is Linda Carter yeah. as Wonder Woman and uh, mid-70s. But the memory of that scene, long before I became familiar with the reality of that scene through sort of, you know, recording the show on VHS and, and all that kind of stuff, um, and now having, owning it on DVD, um, the memory of that and the impact that that visual had on me immediately just blew my hair off. I couldn't believe what it was I was seeing because it was so incredibly different to anything I'd seen previously. Um, and you know, at, at four years old, um, very little had made an impact. And this was something that was making an impact. So what was it about her though? Was it, was it the costume? Was it the design? Was it just that there was a strong woman on TV doing things? I think it was the whole combination. Yes. It was like the Bionic Woman was around, but I don't think she had quite the impact that Wonder Woman had. It was, it was the costume. Absolutely. Cause you couldn't miss it. It's so ridiculous and, and outrageous. And I obviously didn't understand the iconography of it at the time. It was just really bright and colorful. And she was so beautiful. And when she had an opportunity to be gentle, she was gentle and she was smart. But when that approach didn't work, she would just win through sheer force. <laughs> and I quite, was quite amused by that, especially being the youngest of, of uh, quite a few in my generation. One of the big things is, of course, as a Wonder Woman compared to, say, a Superman or a Batman, she has the lasso of truth. This has become very important to her as an as a individual character, that she, she stands for truth. You know, Superman may be truth, justice in the American way, but she seems to define it in who she is as a character. Yeah, well, she has, she, it's built into her arsenal. You know, I've, I, I kind of refer to her arsenal as accessories because that was probably part of the, the girly appeal is that, you know, she's got this great tiara and she's got bracelets and she's got this um, lasso. Uh, but because she sort of doesn't just stand for truth, but she can get the truth, you know, she can, she can 
make the gray area black and white. And I find that quite compelling. And I think that continues to be quite compelling, Uh, you know, especially in the age that we're living in now where, you know, black and white seems to have gone down the toilet and, and everything is really dirty shades of gray. Being able to just absolutely 100% define what the truth is, even if there are aspects of the truth and and different people's truth. Um, I think that that's something that's always been quite fascinating because people want to know, even if it's, even if it's just gossipy, people just want to know, they want to know. And Wonder Woman has the ability to actually know. (laughs) (laughs) When you look at the supposed political agenda of Wonder Woman and you look at the current situation that we're faced in politically at the moment, which is very challenging in pretty much every country that Mm. we're we're looking at, back in her genesis, and we're talking like 1942 here, I think it was Wonder Woman number seven, the cover was Wonder Woman for President. Yeah. It, it couldn't have been any more um, obvious what the agenda he was. And, and the text inside, I just want to read this and get your thoughts on it, was men and women will be equal, but women's influence will control most governments because women are more ready to serve others unselfishly. Yeah, how true is that? <laughs> That's 42 and yeah. we still haven't got that right. Isn't that, Yeah, isn't that extraordinary? But that sort of, that kind of really demonstrates um what Morton was going for in the first place. You know, he had strong women around him and he just, he believed quite strongly in the sort of the the female power um, and how I think he probably thought of it as incorruptible, which is bullshit, but um, that it was just more earnest and, and more uh, essentially sort of, motivated in the right way you know it's it's not motivated by power it's motivated by doing the right thing for the right people for everybody for all the agency she was given in her creation unfortunately wonder woman seems to be um, uh, subjected to the changes of times more so than say a superman or a batman or an aquaman um yeah in both in design and also character why do you think that is well i think a, a lot of the characters were kind of stripped of their um their primary agency uh, when the comics code kicked in, which was sort of uh, starting to bubble in the late 40s and into the early 50s. And Wonder Woman kind of really bore the brunt of it because she was the most recognised female character. And so a lot of it was post-World War II. uh, You know, women were being sent back to the kitchen, having had agency and had plenty of things to do to keep them busy to contribute to society. They were just now expected to be mothers and wives. And Wonder Woman being this sort of incredible representation of the power that women could have, she kind of became a bit of a romance story. Oh, didn't Um, she just? Yeah. And then sort of went through a period where her powers were stripped from her and she didn't have a costume. Um, I I think... Like certainly the male characters went through it a little bit as well. You know, Batman went from sort of quite a dark vigilante character to quite a goofy character. And this was all, the the comics code was about sort of making sure that there wasn't anything, there was a similar thing happening in movies, but it was about making sure that it was all sort of very pure for children. And, you know, Batman and Robin always had the sort of homoerotic element lingering over them and Wonder Woman always had a, a sapphorific 
um, you know, element uh, over her because she didn't need a man. Um, and she, she did, came she, from a, an island of Amazons. No, but and we will get to him though. But she did have a, a co-star or a man. Yeah, she had a boyfriend. Yeah. Um, but he was the one that needed saving quite often, even though he was a hero himself. She didn't often need him to save her. Yes, yes. Poor Steve Trevor. He started off with as an equal and quickly devolved into seemingly being yeah. um, the damsel in distress. And I do think that that was a big part of the problem in the long term with Wonder Woman, as opposed to especially in comparison to characters like um, Superman and Batman. Her support cast, meaning Steve Trevor and Etta Candy and all of these other characters, they weren't terribly well served by the writers that kind of took up the mantle after, you know, a decade of her being around. Um, you know, Lois wasn't served terribly well once the war was over. As um, You know, she went from the most brilliant, tenacious, uh, investigative reporter to just wanting to be married to Superman. That sort of became her agenda for a good decade, which was a, a huge yawn. But during the sort of the continued um, writing and development of these comic characters, Batman support characters sort of became enriched and Superman support characters became enriched and Wonder Woman support characters kind of got pushed off off the slate and weren't ever really sort of delved into in new contextual ways as the decades progressed. Well, I think I've heard you say that Alfred the Butler has had more character development than anyone in Wonder Woman's world. Oh, completely. Absolutely. Alfred the Butler is an incredibly well-nuanced character, especially now after, you know, 30 years of deconstructing um, in comic books. Uh, Alfred is a really fascinating character. Uh, Steve Trevor, on the other hand, who's like the second most important character in... Wonder Woman's world, arguably, because there's there's um, some really interesting Amazon characters. He sort of ceased to be a romantic character or a ma- romantic interest character in the 80s. And he was sort of not terribly an interesting character in the 60s and 70s. And when he was sort of reintroduced, uh, he was always just a side person, someone that was kind of a, like a legacy character who just had to be there in some way shape or form, and it sort of put Diana in this um, awkward position of no one can replace the original boyfriend to the fans, so therefore she just was a virgin (laughs) for 30 years. You know, she couldn't have any sexuality, so she went from being a woman with sort of a full spectrum of agency to needing to be this sort of empowered virgin. (laughs) <laughs> Yikes. She seemed to have been saved for a short period of time there by Gloria Steinman, the renowned feminist, when she was put on the cover of Ms. Magazine back in around um, 1972. Yeah. And that seemed to reinvigorate the character in some ways and that it did put her back as a feminist icon. But that didn't carry through and that seems to be mostly the fault of the creators at the time, that people just didn't know what to do with Wonder Woman. Yeah, I... I... Because of the the comics code, which was still around, even though it had loosened up, Wonder Woman had kind of become an international woman of mystery. You know, she had a samurai sword and a jumpsuit and owned a fashion house and it was all just a a, a strange detour. What? Um, And at the time that Miss Magazine number one was was getting ready to launch, um, 
Gloria Steinem wanted Wonder Woman on the cover and had to campaign with DC Comics to get her back in the costume and repowered because, and, you know, they didn't want to miss the opportunity. Um, I think the TV show, which was not that long after, kind of really did help cement Wonder Woman again. Um, And the Super Friends cartoon, which sort of started in the early 70s and continued through to the mid-90s in one uh, incarnation or another, um, helped to sort of solidify her position um, amongst her other super friends. Um, (laughs) That was embarrassing. Um, But still, I feel like it was probably... uh, George Perez's sort of 1986 reboot of the character that sort of really propelled her forward into a modern context at the time that made her incredibly relevant and important. I think the first woman to work on Wonder Woman as as a comic artist was around 1982. So that's almost like 41 years after her creation. Yeah. How much do you think that lack of... Uh, female engagement or creative work has informed some of these difficulties that um, she's experienced. Well, I think it's a big part of the reason why she did lag, you know. Um, Superman and Batman have had their origin stories retold over and over and over again because every time a creator who's grown up loving these characters gets to a point, a writer or an artist or a writer and artist team, they get to a point where they're allowed to touch those origin stories again, they they will retell it in a slightly different way from a slightly different perspective, slightly different context. And what that really does is just bring a richness to the overall story um, and a nuance. And Wonder Woman just hasn't had the same amount of opportunities. You know, there's only been a couple of retellings of her origin and like they are with Superman, there's, they're all s- slight, you know, slightly different but really really the same. It's just the context is, you know, the, the, the era in which they're created is slightly different. You grew up in a, in a house of illustrators and artists as such and you were taken to life drawing classes at an early age. Mm-hmm. But you didn't decide to pursue art your ambition was to become an actress and you went to a performing arts high school. Yeah. Why was it that you seemed to turn away from what other members of the family had sort of instituted around you? Well, I feel like I'm, I'm the youngest by quite a bit of uh, my sisters and, and also my cousins because we all kind of grew up together. This is sort of six girls. Um, and they're all reasonably similar close to uh, each other's age and I'm – quite a bit behind them. And so I had this influence of these of these sort of fire, charismatic, you know, n- naughty, bossy girls. Your <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, own sort paradise of, island yes, in many ways. Exactly, and I got to be the baby. And while it was a very artistic household, everyone sort of had their own interests. Um, my elder sister studied, you know, left high school and studied to be a graphic designer and almost immediately got this incredible job um, in the mid-80s, you know, a really big high-profile job and went from that job to another, you know, massive high-profile job and she won loads of awards and and was amazing and to this day continues to be a graphic designer. And uh, my middle sister um, is a singer-songwriter and that's how her creative sort of interests played out 
and you know she wrote a rock opera when she was 14 that oh, wow. you know did quite sort of you know quite well in terms of the exposure that it got her and she was on um the sort of first big serious talent show in Australia Star Search when that first started off and it was very serious took itself very seriously she won that at the age of 18 when they didn't want her on because she was too young, you know, because most of the performers, this is sort of mid-80s as well, most of the performers were in their sort of late 20s and their 30s. Yeah, and we should put that in perspective. This was a huge show at the time. that We show. only had four channels that worked yeah. in Australia. <laughs> it was a big deal. <laughs> it was a very big deal. Yeah, so, you know, I, I had these two sisters who were just super talented in their <laughs> areas of interest and just knocking it out of the park. And I had my my mother who was never a terribly ambitious person. She was always, always sort of a little sort of scared of too much notice, um, but ridiculously talented. Um, and she was an illustrator and a painter and uh, she could sew. And so she was sort of one of those people that could do everything and do it all pretty well, but wasn't in any way ambitious and and didn't have sort of career ideas built into her being. You know, she'd just sort of find herself uh, doing bits and pieces for other people at, at various times. You know, she started up a fashion label with my godmother who went on to sort of do very well in the fashion industry for um, a good number of decades. But, you know, my mum my was just sort of doing it while I was a baby, you know, sewing, sewing up stuff while I was sitting in a basket full of chamois. But through mum, I sort of learnt a lot. We all learnt a lot. And um, I feel like sort of out of my sisters, I was the one that sort of lent closer into having similar uh, talents to mum. You know, they were sort of a little broader and maybe it was possibly because I was emulating mum a little more than they were. I was sort of, you know, mum sort of always impressed me mm. in a way that, you know, my sisters have a different relationship with her. But to sort of find my own thing was really important because everybody else had their own thing. And just sort of doing school plays um, kind of really kicked it off for me when I was still in primary school. And I started studying at ATYP, you know, sort of doing holiday workshops and then doing, you know, term-long Saturdays and that became my interest and my focus. So while I could draw and I could sew, acting was the thing that was just mine. Um, and, and was it that it was yours and therefore that's why you took ownership of it? Or was it that you got something from it as well? Oh, I super got something out of right. it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Leo. I'm the attention <laughs> seeker out of my family. Um, uh, you have look at me disease. I have absolutely look at me disease. I'm the youngest, so I'm spoiled uh, and... Uh, yes, I'm a Leo and I just needed, I needed as much attention as anyone would give me <laughs> and being on stage gave me attention. And I really did get something out of it. And uh, from the very first sort of school play where I played any character of any significance, um, I was getting really good feedback from, you know, teachers, from parents, from, you know, just people, you know, other students' parents who I didn't know would just come up to me after and say, oh, my God, that was great. And, you know, that that kind of ego rubbing and self-esteem building 
help me feel like, okay, this is what I want to do because it gives me attention and I get to sort of play because I was always a big sort of uh, dress up and fantasy play kind of kid. Did you ever um, play as Wonder Woman? <laughs> non-stop. Are you kidding? <laughs> I my have best, to ask. My, my best friend Sally was uh, a year younger than me and uh, shorter than me. So we were always playing Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl and I was always Wonder Woman because oh, I was older and taller. Yes. Um, but I think I spent my entire childhood giving myself toxic shock because I was constantly <laughs> drawing with, you know, 70s very toxic markers on my skin, um, Wonder Woman bracelets. Uh, and if I wasn't drawing them on, I was using like masking tape to, to cut off my circulation <laughs> by wrapping them around my wrist really tight and then drawing stars on it. Did you have any, anyone throw anything at you and you had to block them? Constantly. Kind of Don't you remember ching, throwdowns ching, ching. Um, oh, when, yeah. when uh, uh, fireworks night came along? Yes, when fun used to be allowed. When we were allowed to have fun, yeah. A packet of throwdowns. <gasps> We'd sort of throw them at each other's feet. So we got the noise and we got the smell and we got the action. And pew, pew. Um, and I always had. They used to a make. Piece and those, for those who don't know, throwdowns were these little things that you literally used to throw at a wall or, or each other, um, and at the floor, and they'd make a snap, almost like a bullet. Yeah, they sound. had gunpowder in them. It's <laughs> insane. Yeah, it was like a little matchbox full to... of these tiny little pellets that had targets on them, That's little right. paper targets on them. And you bought and them you from a throw news them down, and they had to hit something hard, and they would explode. Yeah. Yeah, and there was no point throwing them at each other because they needed a really hard surface to explode on. They bounced off the bum. Yeah, so you just don't hit them right at someone's foot. <laughs> God, the danger. I love it. Um, but, yeah, I always, I always had, you know, a packet of those uh, in my pocket and I always had a, a length of rope, you know. I always had a length of rope tied through my, um, my jeans belt loops. Um, and trying to constantly find different ways to attach that rope to my jeans or my pants, whatever way, um, so I could get at it easily. <laughs> I can remember <laughs> with a big paperclip um, uh, uh, fashioning a, a holder for my rope. Oh, that's fantastic. Just yeah. So that moments of crisis, you've yeah, got your lesson of truth. Yep. I loved it. <laughs> So did you think you were particularly ambitious at all when you were at school, like pursuing the acting? I mean, you obviously wanted to do it, but yeah. were you ambitious? I was I was ambitious. Um, I wasn't terribly smart about the strategy of my ambition. Um, having witnessed my sisters just hit it, <laughs> hit that success um, immediately and, you know, not not that they weren't trying. They were, you know, really talented, hardworking um, girls that just, you know, the success just came rocketing at them and, or, or you know, those sort of representations of success came rocketing at them. Um, and I just thought the same thing would happen for me. And when it didn't, I wasn't really prepared for the hustle um, and the networking, and that wasn't something that came easily to me. I found that hanging out with actors kind of really drove me crazy. It's like hanging out with out-of-work actors. Yeah. If we were all together and we were working, I loved it. Mm. Get me working with working actors and I was fine. But as soon as it was like a bunch of out-of-work actors, of which I was one, hanging out together. It was like, oh, my God, you people are the what? <laughs> I, can't, I can't handle this sort of strangeness. And so I, I stuck with it for a decade. 
um, after high school and it just wasn't going the way that I hoped it would. It was quite heartbreaking to sort of find myself needing to put that in a box and that was that was really based on the frustration of what was coming my way was not nearly the kind of um, meaty stuff that I was hoping for. And part of it was that I've always been quite uh, sure of my self-esteem. You know, confidence can be bravado and I can put that on just like a hat. But uh, self-esteem is something that I feel like I've actually had sitting underneath all of that. Mm. And I don't know that I realised that I had self-esteem until sort of my late 20s and I was starting to feel it being really chipped away at. And that was possibly the the really big thing that I was like, oh, this is this is really bumming me out that I'm starting to doubt my self-esteem now. And at this point, Wonder Woman appears yet again in your life, which is you go up for a role in a Wonder Woman pilot. Yep. Late 20s. Don't get it. And that I was seemed- 25. I was 25. in mid-20s, yeah. And it seems to be that seems to be one of these key um, breaking points for you. It, it was because it was like here here is a role that is perfect for me because I know this character so well and I'm tall. At the time I was very fit. I was like I'm a fake tan and a good wig away because <laughs> I'm very pale. Um, a fake tan and a good wig away from being able to nail this role. And so I was auditioning from Australia, sending over tapes and they were sending me scripts and it was in that sort of superficial early stages of casting going very well, um, you know, what I was hearing back from um, casting at Warner Brothers in the States was that, you know, I was I was still in, in the mix yeah. despite the fact that they'd had massive cattle calls all over the States and um, they had a couple of big, big TV names as possibilities or hopefuls. Um, I was still in the mix. Um and this was the producers of the Lois and Clark TV show. Right. So once that had wrapped up, they just thought, okay, let's do that all over again. Yeah. And when that whole thing fell through, that didn't get made, it didn't get cast, it, it, it just sort of the, the, pre, the development of it just sort of fell down. And I think um, the production house itself was kind of shifting gears from what I understand. You know, a lot of it was sort of gossip and I, my vague memory of it. Um, was that it ended up turning into doing Superman again and they made Smallville. But at the time, uh, yeah, I was 25 and fit and tall and ready to go. And when that didn't happen, I was just like, oh, man, that's the, that's like the one role in the world that I can think of that I could just nail. And it's not happening. That's a bit devastating. I'm out. And that was sort of yeah that was sort of part of the 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 bigger decision making of i need to put acting in a box if not forever then at least for a while because i need to do something else i just need to put my focus somewhere else somewhere where i can have a fresh eye and have fresh energy and even then with that decision working out what to do next actually took a while but it's interesting when listening to your, your story and you told this next part quite a lot or quite often, I should say, is that instead of just saying, well, what, what am I going to do? Mm. You asked a much better question of yourself, which seemed to be, what do I want to do every single day? 
Yeah, it took 18 months of working out, of trying to think, what am I going to do before I got to the point where I just changed the wording of the question. But as soon as I did that, the answer was immediate. It was immediate. Like I, I was answering the question as I was asking the question. It was like, oh, God, I wish I could just draw Wonder Woman all day because, you know, this is back in landline times where, you know, you'd sit on the phone all the time and, you know, you'd have the the landline in a particular place, even if you had a um, a portable phone, there was always a base that it had to be on and there was always a chair by the base and there was always a notepad by the base and a bunch of pens that didn't work. And I would always just sit down and draw Wonder Woman whenever I was on the phone. I just didn't, it didn't stop. And it was only ever her face, but I would automatically, without thinking, just draw Wonder Woman's face um, anytime I was on the phone. So that answered being, oh, which I could just draw that, draw that every day because that's kind of what I did already. Um, that answer was immediate and that was immediately followed. It was so quick. It was immediately followed by, oh, my God, that's a real job that someone has somewhere in the world. I don't know anything about this business, but someone is being paid to draw Wonder Woman every day because Wonder Woman has a comic book and that's that's a drawing job. <laughs> But you didn't have a history of comic books. I mean, comic yeah. books at the time when we grew up were difficult to get in Australia and certainly yeah. around Sydney, you know. Um, you might find the occasional in a news agency, but to try and follow a book was particularly difficult. Oh, yeah. And, there, and There were always sections in the news agencies that had comics, but they were more often than not like Hulk and hmm. Thor and they were Jack Kirby art and they were characters that I didn't know or didn't care for and... The art was sort of quite masculine and it just didn't feel like it was in any way for me. And I found that just sort of, and on the odd occasion when I did see Wonder Woman in a comic, it just, it wasn't the same as the TV show. So yeah. I just didn't get it. It just didn't feel like comics were for me. And I, I, I did actually, you know, there were times when I would have a comic either. I would buy one at a news agency or someone would leave one behind somewhere and I would have it for a long period of time and I would flip through. I was only ever interested in Wonder Woman, occasionally Batman and Superman if they're around, Supergirl or Batgirl. I love those characters because they had movies and TV shows and were in the Super Friends. And I would sort of look at the art of it because I would draw these characters myself and I would look at the art of someone else drawing these characters and I'd sort of see what they were doing. But it wasn't it wasn't the TV show and I'm a really precious <laughs> Um, you know, detail-orientated um, control freak. And I found the the art at the time sort of a little too loosey-goosey for me. Um, and that's just not what the hair does and that's just not what her belt does and it's just super ridiculous. And, you know, at the time in the comics, Wonder Woman didn't have the stripes on her boots and I loved the stripes on her boots. So it just sort of I'd look at the comic art and I, it would just piss me off. Um, having no idea that that's no meant idea. to be the source material that working backwards. Yes, but that's where the character comes from. Uh, yeah, like a like a goddamn fool. Um, so you go off and educate mm. yourself about comic books. You go off and find a comic store. You start mm. investing into the industry and learning that there is, as you've said, there's there are people being paid to draw Wonder Woman. Mm. And you basically seem to have this laser focus from then on. And within four and a half, I think it's four and a half years, mm. you end up at DC Comics working professionally for them. Yep. I mean, 
Is this something you're known for? Once you put your mind to it, you're just going to keep crashing through that door till someone lets you in? No. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm. I know I can be a bulldozer, um, but no. I, like I, I didn't really know what ambition was until it suddenly hit me in the face, and it was all in this one moment of what do I want to do? I want to draw Wonder Woman. Oh my God, that's a job that someone has. I want that job. That's in comic books. I don't know anything about comic books, but now's the time to start learning. And it was literally that that fast, you know. I, I was in a comic book store 20 minutes later and I just knew then that this is what I wanted to do. I just had to make it happen. And I think just sort of coming from a non-emotional place, you know, where comics didn't have an emotional place in my heart at the time and being older, you know, sort of being in my late 20s rather than a teenager or in my early 20s and having sort of had to box up and put away my dream, it was like, right, I, don't, I can't fuck around now. Um, this is something that I think I could do. It's something that I think I could do well. It's something that I want to do. I want to get paid to draw Wonder Woman because I draw her all day, every day anyway. I'm going to do this. And it it was part arrogance and part ignorance that I think actually helped me succeed because it became very clear to me very quickly that, okay, the industry that I want to be in is in America. Uh, I'm not in America. <laughs> uh, most of the people that work in this industry are men. I'm not a man. Um, most of the people that work in this industry know the industry, know the history, know all the things. Because there were there was the odd occasion once comic specialty stores started popping up in the late 80s and the early 90s, mm. I would venture in very occasionally because I would see superheroes on the windows and I would venture in and I'd just be overwhelmed by what I didn't know and, you know, would find a tiny slice of solace in the one character or the two characters that I would know. So, you know, I'd never felt like a comic specialty store was for me, a place for me. But all of that just had to change and it was just a change in attitude and this this sort of undiscovered ambition that suddenly kicked in because it was like, okay, I don't know anything but I need to learn. And along with that just sort of came a whole bunch of realisations that, okay, if I want to do this, it means that I can't just doodle Wonder Woman. It means that I'll have to draw all the other characters. I'll have to draw backgrounds. I'll have to draw... Um, buildings and cars, I will have to finish what I start, I will have to work with other people, I'll have to show my art to people, you know, all, all of these things. Um, and I will have to accept that I don't know anything and just not be embarrassed about asking really basic questions. So you, you move into DC Comics, you start working across a range of different titles being given opportunities, and you find that sequential storytelling is really what keeps you in the industry. And by se sequential storytelling, it's really it's which frame, which panel moves to the next, tells the next story and mm. moves it along. And a lot of that, I wonder how much of that connects to your background in acting, because ultimately it's the artist's job to interpret the script of what is given to them. Yeah. You are director, you are cinematographer, and therefore you are also 
also, in many ways, you are the actor on the page. You are the one who has to create the nuance and the expression that is demonstrated. So did you find that the two worlds started to collide the better you got? Absolutely. The more I learned about it and the more experience I got, the more I was finding I was using theatre skills Mm. because I knew how to block a scene. You know, when you're you're in theatre and you're blocking a scene, you want to make sure that you know where all the characters are. You want to make sure that the audience can see you know, where everybody is, see everybody's faces well, see see what needs to be seen to further the story or the character development. And because I just had that built into me um, and, you know, sort of working in short films, I sort of had experience with framing things and uh, because I'd made a lot of costumes, I knew how clothes worked and uh, and because analyzing a script is essentially what an actor does. You know, they deep diving to their character and the characters around them and looking for motivations and looking for subtext. That became like the thing that I enjoyed and continue to enjoy the most. You know, a a lot of my peers sort of grew up drawing comic style art um, and doing sort of really flashy action moments and they love doing covers and they love doing splash pages. And because I didn't grow up with that, I don't feel like I'm particularly good at it now because it's never sort of super duper interested interested in me. Interested me? Good grief. Um, <laughs> Is it the quieter moments, therefore, of a script these days that you enjoy most because it gives you the most room to, to use those often, skills? Often. It's, it's, the, it's the quieter, more subtle beats where things aren't being said or there's layers to what is being said. Um, I love subtext and I'm always looking for the subtext because that I feel like can really um, give these two-dimensional, literally sort of two-dimensional characters so much more dimension. And I find that the, the writers, because the turnover of a comic books is so fast, writers aren't often writing subtext because there just isn't a lot of time and space to do it. It's very different to a TV show where you've got, you know, a, a different actor playing every role and you have a production designer and you have a director and you have a, a whole cast and crew of people sort of f- filtering the script through their experience and their knowledge and their ideas um, to be directed by the director into something that's cohesive. Um when you're doing comics, the the artist is kind of doing that all by themselves. And for, again, because the turnover is so fast, a lot of artists just don't pay, you know, they, they aren't really thinking about the subtext at all. They're drawing what is written on the page. I've heard you say that um, in your view, comics are often a world of Chinese whispers yeah. in that it's up to the artist to either make that story sing or you can completely get it wrong. Well, absolutely, because it is because it is a, a chain that doesn't often have a lot of oversight from the person um, previous to you. You know, the writer writes the script sometimes in a vacuum and then hands the script to the editor and the editor will hand the script to the artist and the artist will draw their interpretation of the script in a vacuum, hand it back to the editor and the editor will hand it to the letterer and the inker and the colorist and everyone's sort of working in their own bubble. Um, and the editor is really the only person that's kind of uh, 
more often, you know, is the only person guaranteed to be in contact with everybody. Um, and even then, if they're editing 50 million books and everything has to be done on a very tight deadline, what they're chasing up mostly is deadlines. They're just making sure that everyone stays on track. And it doesn't really matter if certain nuances are missed because if it was important, it would be in the script. And if it's in the script, then it will be, it will get done. Um, where I've been lucky enough, having been in the industry for a while, built up a sort of nice relationship with almost all the writers that I've worked with. Um, because the nuance and the subtext is what fascinates me the most. And because I love the characters more than I love the plot necessarily, I will spend so much more time with these characters. I act them out. You know, I do sit in, in my sunroom sort of acting them out, finding different levels of energy for the scene, finding different tones for, for each scene. I would also put to you that perhaps you've put yourself into a couple of these books on occasion. We're going to jump over to Black Magic specifically, where rereading it recently, there was a shot in a primary school where um, a young girl called Carly puts up her hand. And if I'm not wrong, it seems to be uh, almost like an 11-year-old version of yourself. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I I think a lot of artists... um, a lot of a lot of writers write themselves and a lot of artists draw themselves it's because it's that's who you're most familiar with um i i find that i draw you know versions of myself into most of my characters but black magic is a deeply personal piece of work for you it is oh, yeah. creator owned and you've joined with greg rucker author screenwriter comic book writer mm-hmm. um you both work together on wonder woman and greg had a concept that he brought you in on and said, listen, let's develop a world, and that is of a homicide police officer who happens to also be a witch, and there's a deep history of their coven. There seems to be reflections of your own life all the way throughout the art. Is this because you you have total ownership of it? Yeah. Um, when you're working on creator-owned, you're, you're, you've got the liberty and the freedom to really do whatever the hell you want because you're not dealing with, you know, decades of... Uh, built-in structure and understanding, um, you get to do what you want. And and Greg sort of came to me with this sort of broad idea. I think at the time he he was either about to write or had just written the first script. And we spent uh, five years kind of occasionally talking about it before um, we both had the time to start doing it. Um, and even then... You know, we just sort of had the opportunity to be incredibly collaborative in a way that you don't often get in comics, especially mainstream, where we talked about this story a lot before I even started. Um, I spent probably about a year just sort of scribbling um, because I wanted to slowly find the characters and I wanted to slowly find the art style that I wanted to use because I knew it needed to be different from all the superhero stuff that I've been doing. Um, And, of course, within that, you start just putting more and more and more of yourself into it. And because, you know, our lead character comes from a matriarchal family, obviously I relate to that and so, you know, I sort of am putting in bits and pieces. But I find the places where I get the most sort of, um, I find myself putting the most of myself in is when I'm creating a new environment for these characters, especially our lead. Uh, whenever we're in her bedroom or we're in her living room or we're in her kitchen, 
I'm creating my dream version <laughs> of, of what I think these places will be, but I'm filling it with stuff that I'm familiar with. I'm filling it with furniture that we had growing up or um, something that my grandmother had or art that my mother painted or the these Rowan's personal spaces are filled with sort of little vignettes of my memory of my childhood home and my mother's creative spaces and my grandmother's home and my aunt's home and my sisters and my cousins. It's all, it's all very familiar. And that's part of what helps me feel like I'm enriching this character because I'm giving her uh, a lot of my own history. And how does that feel knowing that so much of that personal relationship to the character, but also to your life, is going out to others and they're, they're starting to get lost in this world of your own creation and, and part of it is real? Well, it's really, it's really lovely because it's kind of like a prayer, you know. I, I feel like it's a meditation um, doing the work. My mother passed away nearly a decade ago and the, our lead character, Rowan, is a little bit visually based on her. Um, you know, mum looks a little like Rowan in the 70s. She went through a period where she had a haircut like Rowan. You know, she doesn't have Rowan's attitude or didn't have Rowan's attitude. But the the environment that, that she was in is very much that sort of cluttered, decadent chaos <laughs> that I remember growing up with. Um, and sort of being able to uh, sort of, Oh gosh, what's the word? I feel like I'm kind of in communion with mum when I'm creating these these spaces. And that is is incredibly cathartic and and meditative and then sending that out into the world for other people to sort of see and and fall into feels very much in line with the magic in the story that we're sort of creating creating. It is a story that is built around a deep and long family tree mm. and it's about family and historical connections. So it's it's fascinating to learn that so much of your own life is bleeding through that on, on a page. Well, I feel it's, it's unavoidable and yeah. it's also necessary to keep yourself focused on, on work like this because it's long-term work, seven days a week, it's often eight to ten hours a day. You've got to you've got to get something out of it other than a paycheck, um, and so being in a position to put yourself in there emotionally um, makes these projects way more sort of fulfilling. So to finish off, you ended up working on Wonder Woman's origin, which mm. was the entire target throughout this new career that you embarked on almost 15, 16 years ago. And you worked on it in her 75th anniversary yeah. on the occasion of the film being released, which was a huge success and yeah. established Gal Gadot as a, as a megastar. And you sat there at Comic-Con next to Gal Gadot yeah. and the director, Patty Jenkins. I mean, what was that moment like for you with thousands of screaming fans? That was surreal. <laughs> that, was, that was extraordinary. Like, apart from the fact that I was riding the high of getting – what was 100% in every way my dream job. You know, we, we are often asked um, in this industry, you know, what's your dream job? And from the very beginning it was always, you know, I want to work on Wonder Woman. But as the years go by, you kind of refine that answer, you know. It's like it's a dream job, you know. 
you, you can say whatever the hell you want. And I had got to the point where I was saying, oh, I'd love to do an origin story for Wonder Woman. And if I could do it with Greg Rock, I'd love it to be that. Knowing that the chances of that actually happening were so, in you know, teeny tiny. Um, so to find myself actually in that position was itself quite the drug and also quite the responsibility, which was not 100% comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) But then to sort of, you know, as we were originally talking about it, when it first sort of came up as a, this is something that's about to happen, I was thinking, oh my God, it's the 75th anniversary and the movie's coming out. This This has the potential to be huge, not just for us, but for the experience to be huge, to be in this moment, to sort of ride this wave. Because five years ago, my favourite character, Wonder Woman, had been old-fashioned, had been out of the lexicon, had just not been um, really of anyone's interest. But over those sort of five years leading up to her anniversary, leading up to the film coming up, there'd just sort of been this slow swell where you just sort of occasionally hear Wonder Woman's name mentioned out of comics context. And it was exciting to sort of know that the wave was coming and that we were on it. And that kind of, you know, one of the big culminations of that was, yes, at Comic-Con, sort of being on the Wonder Woman 75th anniversary panel, (laughs) which was such a huge panel to be part of anyway, and then to sort of have Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot be on the panel with me and it was just the three of us and our publisher um, and uh, creative director, Jim Lee, just the four of us on this panel. Um, that was thrilling. That was thrilling because it was the first time I was meeting Gal and Patty. Uh, and Gal is overwhelming in her reality. You know, she's actually perfectly cast because she is the character. Um, and Patty... Because she, the, the filming was done, I think for the most part our book was done, um, but she was in post-production and we were in the sort of stage where the book was coming out. Um, having sort of mirror ima- I- image energy uh, with Patty was extraordinary because we were both just over the moon about <laughs> what we were doing and what each other were doing. So it was kind of thrilling to know that she knew what we were doing and had seen the work. I was kind of thrilling the more we got to learn of what she was doing, how much our stories kind of paralleled. Mm. Um, that was very exciting. And to, and to have that 75th anniversary celebrated mm. by three women on stage, to have her creative you know, zenith in the hands of women as well, it just seems to be absolutely perfect. Yeah, and it's, it's goal it's, achieved, William Marsden. <laughs> absolutely. And, I mean, a long way away from a four-year-old's couch. Yeah. I mean, what a fantastic story. Nicola, it's been lovely to talk to you today. It's been an absolute joy. So thank you so much for taking the time. James, thanks for having me. And you can follow Nicola on Twitter at Nicola Scott Art. You can also purchase original artwork from her at her website, nicolascottart.com. You can follow us at ConversationsWW, and you can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps people to find the show. To everyone who has, thank you so much. It genuinely makes a difference. Next month, 
We're speaking with Tony Kavanagh, the thriller author, TV producer, and film writer. It's an extraordinary story, and I'd love to have you with us. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you so much for listening.